there's no doubt there are macroeconomic headwinds. And think about the way we look at the world. You asked me about autonomy earlier. Does that have an effect later without a doubt? Does this funkiness with EVs we've talked about, is that going to have a, a, an effect without a doubt? So is the dealer in uncharted territory? Yes. Much, much more so than my any other time in my 20 years, 25 years in this industry. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Chase Frazier is the managing partner at FM Capital, a venture capital firm that invests in early to mid-stage transportation technology companies. In this conversation, we discussed the rise of Ruben Carvana, the state of automotive tech and venture capital, the most notable trends that Chase is investing in, the unique opportunities with autonomous vehicles, his macroeconomic concerns for the car market, the state of AI in the auto sector and where the value will likely be created, and his biggest wins and conversely, most humbling moments as an investor. Before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by AutoFi. Most digital retail platforms are limited in their capabilities and fall short on empowering dealers to convert shoppers into buyers while protecting profitability. AutoFi delivers done deals by empowering your dealership with the technology to land customers on the right vehicle and deal. From payment configuration, F&I product selection, credit and real-time lender offers, plus the backend selling tools to help close the deal. This accelerates the deal no matter where the customer is, on the dealer's website, over the phone, or in the showroom, and translates to a faster sale with better customer experience and higher profits. In fact, the most engaged dealers on Autofy see $411 more backend PVR versus non-Autofy deals. Go to autofy.com slash CDG to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. That's autofy.com slash CDG and start working with done deals today. This episode is also brought to you by Podium, the lead conversion platform for car dealerships. Podium helps you get found at the top of Google search and convert new leads faster with industry-leading communication tools and AI. With Podium, you can finally take the guesswork out of lead management, bring every lead into one unified inbox, respond automatically in two minutes or less, and even book appointments using AI. Get Podium and get ready to convert leads faster than ever and see why over 100,000 businesses like yours have given themselves an instant advantage with Podium. Get started today with 10% off your plan by texting Car Dealership Guy to 833-441-1166. That's 833-441-1166. Text that number and mention this podcast to get 10% off your plan or visit the link in the show notes below. We're just having a sidebar on the whole Room Carvana saga. I'm just curious, like you were, you were, you were about to say something and I wanted to make sure we get it into the podcast. So what, what are your thoughts on that whole thing in a, a big, in a big way? Yeah. You know, we looked at Carvana early and I would tell you that's one I'm, I missed on and I'm, I missed only because it would have been a huge, huge return. Right. If you had sold an IPO. Yeah, well, I know. IPO, well, we ended up doing bro and it's, it's part of my, my, uh, my best story and then my worst story. It, we wrote it up. We looked at the stock. We compared it to Carvana. We saw that Delta. We hung on a little too long and sold at the wrong, wrong time. Now we made money, but it still worked out. And Carvana's done well this year. It's been a been a good place to be. I'm, it feels like they're on on a good track. But that uh, you talk about a roller coaster ride with that that whole space. Yeah, it's been a hell of a journey. I know I've chatted with some of those people there internally. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would say they've come much further than many people even thought they could or would. You know, if you look at their inventory mix now, one of a CDG follower, a guy named Joe Pistel, actually used to work at Cars. 
he posted an interesting graph and he, on LinkedIn and he showed that Carvana's assortment of vehicles today is, you know, like tens of percentages cheaper than the new car dealer counterparts, which pretty much just alludes to the fact that, you know, there's an affordability squeeze in the market and Carvana is very much uh, skewing their inventory mix to cheaper, more affordable in order to put these cars on the road. It's a very challenging market, as you know. You know, it's amazing. The really, really early days of, of both of those companies, you know, you're sending a 22-year-old kid into the auction and saying, hey, go buy a vehicle. And the other guys in there are like, oh, we love this, right? And it was such a catastrophe. Now, but I, I got to give them credit. They're, they're buying much, much better now. And it, it feels like it's getting a little bit more dialed in. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, why do you say that? Like, where's that insight? What is that rooted in? You know, it's dealers that are telling me that actually, and I feel like that's the the best litmus test, right? Of, of you know, they're paying attention, and so it's not so much my opinion as it's a lot of my dealer buddies. No, that's a, you got the primary source right there. So, so, so Chase, you know, I, when when I was doing some research on you on FM Capital, your firm, I've been curious. You know, just starting very high level, right? Like. How you're you're a VC, you're in Boulder, Colorado, just not something that I not somewhere I would expect, you know, VC to be headquartered in, given kind of where the tech hubs are. Can you give us some background? Like how'd you get into the space? Why Boulder? What's it been like? Well, the why Boulder is it's just a great place to live. I wanted a good spot to raise my family. And so this was this was home and it it's ended up being phenomenal. Boulder's actually got a very vibrant VC scene. Techstars was started here. You, you know that name. And then Techstars is a worldwide brand at this point. A guy named David Cohen started that here. And it's still found, uh, still here. And then Brad Fell, I don't know if you know that name, Brad's with Foundry. He's got a, an enormous following. He's here. And so it's this kind of quiet little town that's got a lot going on from a, from a venture standpoint. The Valley's where it is, for sure. I mean, there's no doubt that there's more VCs out there. I think I read an article the other day that there's 1,200 VCs in the Valley alone. But if you think about what we're doing, and and a lot of your audience is focused on dealer tech, it's not in the Valley. Some companies are out there that most aren't. And so I'm on a plane two days a week for 40 weeks a year. So I'm just roadware, right? And have been for decades. And I love it. Honestly, it sounds terrible, but I actually really enjoy that. We need to go to the deals. And our, our business is not about sitting on a Zoom and having a call. You got to go touch it and feel it. You got to go have dinner with the entrepreneur. You got to feel good about what you're about to put money in. And so it's just the nature. We work a ton, but I love it. And there's there's nothing else I'd, I'd want to be doing. It's It's I feel like it's such a competitive venture market. You know, I've done quite a few investments myself in this space. People reach out to me all the time and, you know, just angel invest here and there. But my question to you is like, why specialize just in automotive and transportation, right? Like it's already such a competitive market. Doesn't that just like narrow kind of your aperture and make it even more difficult to bring the returns to your investors? Yeah, right now I'm, we're raising money for our fourth fund. So I'm talking to a lot of people about this topic and they're, they're asking why specialize. It's really hard to be a generalist right now. There's so many generalists out there. And if you look at the universe, there's three or four VCs that do what I do. And we don't even really run into each other in, in the space. We'll see 800 deals this year. And so when I started this, we were seeing 100. 
and we'll end up investing in call it five or six a year. So we'll end up doing less than one, 1%. So it's not a deal flow problem. And the specialization works. Two, two thirds of our investors are automotive entities. So it's either dealers, it's OEMs, it's distributors, it's gigantic software vendors that you dang sure know who they are. That room helps us be better. So I feel like it gives us an edge, right? Our, some of our best deal flow is coming from, from that group. Mm, that, that was going to be my next question. Like, how, what is your, how do you get your deal flow, right? Like, what is that secret sauce for you? Yeah, I don't know if it's secret sauce. I think, I mean, you've been in the industry a long time and it's the best stuff comes from friends, from industry friends. Hey, Chase, I just saw this deal. This guy's got 50 stores. It's a really cool tool. You need to go talk to this guy. Oh, great. Please introduce me. Or it's from an LP who's gigantic, right? Who's like, hey, we really like this. We may want to buy this at some point. I can't buy it now. If we buy it now, we're going to crush it. It's just too small. Go take a look at this, Chase, and see if we can move it from 200 dealers to 2,000 dealers or 1,500 dealers. Tell us a little bit about like some recent investments, right? Like what, what are your areas of focus and, you know, where have you invested at least recently when it comes to auto tech? You know, what, what are the movers and shakers? Where's your head at? Yeah, it's the ACES theme, if you've seen that. So our, our first one is is really, it's, we call it this automotive category, but it's dealer tech, right? It's the things you and I know. It's what helps dealers sell and service and OEM sell and service more, more, more vehicles. So just think about the NADA floor. You're walking the NADA floor. Who's in that room? Who's got the, the latest, greatest, and who's somebody you want to you wanna talk to? Autonomy is interesting. We don't love B2C autonomy. Google and Cruise and these other folks are going to win that game. But B2B autonomy is interesting. There's some really cool today use cases. We've got a company called Gaddick, where we're delivering product from a Walmart distribution center to a Walmart with no driver, 24-7, 365 days a year. And that's already just, live. That's happening it's live. today. So we like B2B applications for autonomy. It's fixed route, takes lots of right turns to get there, can run at 3 o'clock in the morning. Versus that robo-taxi that's going to come pick you up in front of your, your office today, that's tough. That's a really, really hard math problem. I'll let Google win that. Just the amount of money that you got to spend to figure that out. There's really interesting use cases in B2B. Do you think dealers should be concerned about autonomy? Or do you, like, how do you view that, that entire world? Or do you, like you said, do you think it's a B2B type of thing and the consumer the consumer adoption and just the, how realistic that is. It's, you know, way out to the future. It's just not something to think about today. Long-term, it's going to be a challenge because the Googles and the Apples and the manufacturers are going to get in the, the, the fleet leasing business. And they're going to have a lot of vehicles running around. And instead of you owning those two vehicles in your garage, I think you may own one of them, theoretically. The other one, you pay $500 a month and you get usage rights to an autonomous vehicle. So who bought that vehicle? I don't think long-term that's sold for the dealership. So what, what, what happens then in your, in your view, like if you're in your thesis, what happens to the dealership? How does it evolve in like five, 10 years? What does that look like? 
Yeah, I mean, just a macro comment. I am such a huge fan of, of dealers having been around them for you know 20 plus years. I, it, they're my favorite entrepreneurs in America because they're scrappy and they just know how to make money. And they know how to make money because they know how to sell, right? And so if the world changes for a dealer, they're always going to figure out a way to sell something. I think ultimately dealers are going to get really, really good at service. I, I think this whole fear around the average RO price dropping because of EV. You may have less volume, but I'm not so sure that the average RO doesn't actually increase. And I'm not so sure dealers don't get really, really, really good at fixed ops. So instead of having 30 bays, they have 70 bays. I, I think the guy who ultimately gets hurt in all that is, is Joe's garage, the, the independent, the guy that's just out there trying to make it happen. He doesn't have the toolkit to actually repair some of these vehicles. So it's going to be a problem for for the independents in, in my mind. The dealer's going to be fine, but it's going to look much different. I would agree with that. I think, you know, I think I've been pretty vocal about just being a franchise dealer nowadays versus an independent. You know, we sort of had this decade of independent uh, tailwinds for the independent dealer, right? Declining interest rate, floor plans, were cheaper, you know, you had a rise of independent dealers and suddenly in the last 12 months, I mean, you know, indies are disappearing left and right, or at least many are that, you know, the ones that don't have kind of fortified balance sheets, it's been pretty just crazy how it's all happened so quickly. Um, I would agree with you though that, you know, the future of the franchise dealer, right? Like that, you know, fleet, fleet servicing management for service in general, fixed ops, like that is, I agree that that's, a, you know, the area or that, that, is, that is the future. Not to say that, you know, used parts and all that isn't, but it's much more susceptible to, you know, OEMs kind of coming in and, you know, trying to, you know, the agency model, quote unquote, or doing some direct to consumer, however, however that goes. So just an interesting side note, we've got investors from all over the world. And, and one of my investors is out of Australia and he's got the agency model working. And it was interesting to get him in a room. We've got this advisory board where all of my biggest investors get together and talk shop. And generally, the dealers in the room are pretty nervous about agency because one, it's different. And two, you know, what's going to happen to me? Can you explain how that actually works, the agency model for anyone listening that's not familiar with the term? We are a franchise today, but you're even more of a franchise in the future, meaning you're the big expense is floor plan. You don't actually own those vehicles that are on your lot. And and that was a big positive for him in, in Australia. And so he actually shared, and this, this data is nine months old. We haven't chatted about it since, but his actually net margins are the same. Now, it's it's early days in, in that process, but thus far, he felt pretty good about about what was going on. Now, I didn't ask him a lot of hard questions in the room because we had a lot of other folks in the room, so I don't actually know. I didn't, I didn't see the female, but he just said, you know what, I was worried about this and it's, okay. it's been okay thus, thus far. So he is pretty much selling these vehicles that are not on his balance sheet and then are, be, are they being delivered directly from the manufacturer or do they first come to the dealership and then he does fulfillment? What does that look like? Yeah, it's the model still looks very similar to where he's still, still delivering at, at the dealership. I think ultimately, though, the future of the agency is where you've got very few vehicles on the lot. And so it's going back to what's the future of the dealership look like. If the agency model happens, it's a showroom and a delivery room. So you've got your showroom of four cars. You've got your delivery room of 
six cars. You've got the person doing the walkthrough. And then you've got a gigantic fixed ops area. You've got lots and lots of bays back there for repair. What I just said, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but it is a trend that can potentially happen. Talk to me about just the tightening parameters on venture capital, specifically with respect to auto tech, right? Like what has happened in the last two years, all this just craziness with valuations up, down, and how has that impacted our industry specifically with respect to auto tech? Yeah, if, if, if you and I were doing this two years ago, I would have been a little nervous. And I was nervous because these unicorns were just nuts. I'd, I'd have a conversation with a guy and, and based on revenue multiples, maybe this business was worth $200 million. And there's something about the B, <laughs> the B in a billion. I don't know, I'm worth a billion dollars. Like everybody wanted to be, wanted to be a, a unicorn. And that was scary for us in the industry because our business is about one aspect. It's about buying right. Like I've, I've got to be able to buy the product right. And if I can't, in that example, 200 versus a billion, it's going to take me seven years to catch up to that valuation if, if I believe it. So I just can't do that yet, right? And so we largely stayed away from the unicorns. I guess, yeah, I did Techion. And then everybody on this call or a lot of folks in the call know Techion. And, and that was a unicorn, right? From a valuation standpoint, that one's different though. That one, that one's got a trajectory that's, I think, a little different than just Joe Blow unicorn out there. But just directly answer your, your, your question. I'm really positive about valuations right now because I don't want them to rebound. I want them to, this is rational. I'm having these conversations with entrepreneurs and it feels good. We can sit at a table and I'd be like, okay, I think you're worth X. He thinks you're worth Y. Let's meet in the middle and then let's, let's make an investment. That was not happening two years ago. And that, that, that imbalance isn't, isn't healthy for the industry. And are you looking right now, when you're looking at auto tech, are you looking for, are you, are you putting more of a focus on, you know, cash flow positivity? Are you still, you know, your early stage, just revenue? revenue kind of top line that's what's most important like are you are you optimizing more for one or the other that's basically my question yeah we use the term a lot path to profitability and back even when thing when people weren't talking about that that's a big deal to us how are these businesses going to get to profitability so it's still a very important thing for us this whole term burn i mean i i use it just because that's what we talk about in the industry i can't stand the word right burning money like I, I grew up in a in an entrepreneurial family and just that term just seems a little crazy, like burn money. Can we come up with a better way to talk about that? I, I wish we could. But I'll tell you, the burn rate, you get a business that two years ago was burning a million, two million bucks a year. You just can't do that. I mean, a month. And there were a lot of companies that were burning a million, two million bucks a month. That just doesn't work today. I, I think anything over 500 is problematic, but it's also a function of what are your cash reserves. If, if you're burning 500 and you've got 60 million bucks in the bank, that's a different animal. Said differently, we want our companies to have 18 months of runway because we feel like 18 months is a nice safety net through any kind of economic situation. And a vast majority of our companies are, are at 18 plus. 
What do, you, what do you think about the current state of AI? There's been lots of chatter in the broader tech industry, but then specifically within dealerships, you know, people have asked me, like, what am I seeing? How do you think just number one, what is the state of AI? And then I want to build on top of that, you know, how is it going to change the buying experience for consumers, the management experience at, at a dealership? Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, a macro comment, I, I think open AI, open AI will actually have a place in history books. A paragraph in our kids' history books in 100 years. I think it's both good and bad, right? And we could, this podcast isn't about the, the negatives around what AI could do, but I think it's enormous game changer. Now, talking about our industry, and I'll keep referring to this NADA floor because it makes sense to a lot of your, your listeners. There are really good salespeople on that floor, phenomenal salespeople. I think the tech in general is just okay. I've given a B, right? So the, the, the tech's decent. What's going to end up happening, I think, is there's going to be four or five big corporations that have the really, really good AI. And it's, I, I don't, well, you can guess who they're going to be. I mean, we reread about it, but it's going to be a likely three or four. And then there's just going to be APIs into that. And then what ends up happening is you just build products off of that. So you and I are walking the NADA floor in 10 years and we're looking around. I think everybody has an API into one of those three or four, but they don't own that IP. And so the way my mind's thinking is, okay, how do I then value this company in the future? Who's capturing the value? Right. And what kind of, what is this, what do these licensing agreements look like with, with the, one of those big four? And then how much tech have you built on top of that that I can value? And so there's going to be some kind of some shell games going on, I think, in the future where entrepreneurs are going to say, hey, I've got this thing and it does this. And I'm like, okay, well, let me look underneath the covers. Oh, no, no, no. 90% of this is not you. <laughs> 90% of this is Microsoft. Could you make a similar case, though, that like 90% of anything on the internet is not, right? Like this podcast we're recording right now is not me. It's it's Amazon Web Services in the background and stuff like that. So like, how do you think about the distinction there? Do you just think that with AI, the value gets accrued more to the kind of parent co? And then, you know, all these startups and companies that are out there kind of building AI tools for dealers, they're just not going to capture as much of the value that's available? A good litmus test are patents, right? And how much IP protection does a company have? If I go into a deal, even today, and we look at it and it generally has no IP protection, I get a little nervous. And so it's a little bit of, I like the the lawyers to figure out the differentiation. And if you see some tech and they've got, you know, 50 total patents or, or 47 pending three that have been awarded. And then I look at how broad those three are. That changes my view of my exit. I mean, think about the way I think about a business. I'm always thinking about the exit. What is this business going to look like in five years? And when I'm talking to somebody about buying it, do, do I have enough intellectual property and do I have moats around what I do? And if I have moats around what I do, I'm more likely to want to do that. There, there's a slight caveat here. There, there are dealer tech deals that I just know are going to sell because I understand dealers and there's not a lot of IP protection. We'll do those deals just because I know Reynolds or CDK or Cox, you know, one of the usual suspects 
likely could like this business. That, that's my that's my asterisk. So tell me, like practically speaking, you know, how do you envision AI actually looking into the dealership? What what is this? Lots of dealers are like, you know, what is all this hype? Like, I'm selling a car. There's a proven way to do it. Like, how is this actually going to impact the dealership? In your opinion, of course. Yeah, I, I, you. What, I'm going to actually actually your, ask your opinion as well about the, the deal of the world. But it's, this is more of a macro comment. I still feel like dealers are a little bit behind, and maybe a lot behind the curve on just the customer experience. It's still in some ways a broken broken retail experience. Now, is it way better than it was 10 years ago? Yes. Is it going to be much, much better over the next 10? Yes. Like the dealership, the retail, the franchise dealer is progressing, but it, it goes down to just the humor, human interaction. And what does the consumer want? And so I, I, don't, I don't know that I think so much in specific use cases in a dealer Oh, there's this AI camera, and when I drove up, I saw you, and I read your license plate, and I had a guy walk up who knew to upsell you on the transmission flush. I mean, all of that stuff is going to happen. I'm more concerned about the macro experience for the consumer. Said differently, you're going to have, you know, you're going to go to dinner with another couple this weekend, and you're talking, you interview them about the dealership experience. 99% of them are going to go, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's not a great experience. What I think happens with tech, and it's not one silver bullet, it's a lot of different tech and specifically AI. Hopefully you have that conversation in, in 10 years. And I'm like, wow, it's a much better experience now. Yeah, look, I think that the way I view it, you know, you point to like a specific solution potentially, or you, you're, you're alluding to a couple of things that could happen. I think that if you just put the entire car buying process from like the moment someone has a desire to purchase a vehicle to the moment, you know, they're three months with their car and they're driving in happily ever after. I think that entire process just needs to be simplified, shortened. And it's many, many small minor touch points. I think that we're we're still operating kind of many disparate systems that don't talk to each other very well. Maybe the handoff is not great. And I don't think, and I and I think there's a good reason why we've gotten to this point. Right. Like, why do you go to a dealer's website and, you know, you have that pop up and then you have like, you know, five call to actions and then you have this little widget to go get your financing terms. All these are different tools that are not necessarily talking to each other. And it's because it is, you know, the, the, the car, per, you know, this the car purchase is built up of so many elements. You have financing, you have, of course, the actual inventory, merchandising, yada, yada, yada. So I think the, the more we can get those things to communicate together. I think that's, you know, the companies that are going to kind of accrue a lot of this value in the industry because they're going to be able to just deliver a better customer experience because all the systems are actually talking to each other. And the customer experience is a seamless handoff. I don't have to go from working with the widget to working with the lead provider to going into the CRM that, you know, maybe doesn't parse the information correctly because, you know, yada, yada, yada. That's how I think about it. I agree completely. And just to like pull on that thread a bit, which one of the four DMSs or which two or three of the four DMSs are going to figure that out? I think it's a race to get there. And I think if anybody is going to, to aggregate disparate software, ad hoc software programs within a dealership, it's probably those guys. And so what does that look like? And I, I, I won't even venture to guess how it's all going to shake out. I'm, I'm 
by the way, I'm very close with all four of them and have been for decades. So they're, they're all friends. And that's not a politically correct answer. It's I am friends with them. I don't know who's, how this is all going to shake out. But you're right. So I want to I shift topics for a second from AI. Talk to me about EVs and your involvement in the space. You know, there's tons of chatter on it right now. You know, we're seeing some weakened demand across the board for just general EVs, not necessarily Tesla, although they've also been slashing their prices in order to buoy that demand. And to be clear, like this is not a knock on Tesla at all. I think Tesla is a phenomenal company and I think they have a phenomenal product. Uh, but I also think that there have been some very, very high expectations for where EVs are going to go. I mean, I think we're starting to sort of, you know, get closer to kind of reality here with weakened demand, slower sales uh, across most major brands. What is your take on kind of the, the current state of EVs and, you know, what's to come next? Yeah, I, I'm going to look backwards actually to answer that question because we've been watching this while I've been in VC and have had a lot of comments around all of this. So, a lot of OEM buddies, and I, you know, you'd have a beer with with one of these guys, and off the record, and you'd talk about Elon. This was the early days, and they'd be like, "No way can that guy do this." There's no, it, manufacturing a vehicle is really, really hard. It's never going to work. He's he's never going to make it right. And this wasn't one person. This was virtually everybody I talked to. Right. So fast forward, and you're in a boardroom, and your stock's fifteen bucks, and his is two hundred and fifty. It became human nature to say, hey, we need to be more like that. And it was it was around just returns for, for investors. And so you had this huge push from all of the OEM boards. We need to be doing this, right? And so I, I this number's definitely bigger now, but six months ago, the, the, the number was the OEMs have spent $100 billion in CapEx to get the EV train going. There's no going back. And so it's a little shocking to me. It's like, whoa, like this is serious money. And not, not only that, they can't make money on these cars. Tesla can, but most of the, the others can't. And it's going to be a while, I think, before you see like really good profit margins on these EVs. So you're, the OEMs are in a really funky, dangerous spot, in my opinion. So and then shifting gears... This whole day is an inventory. Again, my data is a month old, but it was like 42 days for an ICE engine, a combustion engine. It was 92 days for an EV. So then I ask my investors, what's going on? And they're like, they're just not moving. And so then I ask myself, okay, was this an early adopters problem? Did everybody who wanted to buy an EV, have they already bought them? Right? Like the the, the early adopters in tech, right? Or is it a version one problem of software? Like I can tell you right now, I'm driving the, the Rivian SUV. It's, it's flipping phenomenal. But I'm driving to a meeting. My vehicle tells me that I've got 300 miles of range. It's 200, by the way. And I just coast back into the office at exactly 0%. So this product itself is so early innings, right? Just the, and I'm not talking about Rivian. I'm talking about just EVs in general. For us, the magic number is 500 miles of range and seven minute charge. That seven minute charge is the time it takes you to, to fill up your vehicle. 
That's what I was thinking, yeah. Right, and the 500 miles is obvious. It's a tank of gas, right? Flush of miles. That's where we need to go. So you you think we get to parity like that? You think the industry, you get a lot more consumer adoption? I think there will be more consumer adoption, for sure. I, mean, I also think the, there's mixed messages. You're you're one of the, the OEMs that's been pumping out, like Ford, you know, the Lightning. Are they doing a good job marketing that vehicle? I don't, I don't know. Maybe not. This, it goes back to ask your buddies, hey, what do you think about this product? Well, I don't really understand it, right? Tesla's pretty pure about what they are. Hey, tell me about Tesla. You ask that same buddy, they like can give you a pretty finite answer of what that is. Hey, tell me about the Chevy Bolt. Well, I don't really, I don't really understand the, the product. So I, I think ultimately we get there, but I think there's it's gonna be really messy. I think it's gonna be the messiest thing we've seen in our industry in the last 20 years. Short term. I think long term it kind of susses itself out. Just one more point. I'm sorry, I'm getting passionate about this because <laughs> This whole rare earth mineral thing that it's it's making news, but I just I don't think the the average consumer is really getting their head around lithium cobalt manganese. We don't have enough of that. And it's a very big geopolitical problem and it's going to get bigger. And there's a there is a situation. I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of Toyota. I just think they really, really do it right. And they've been totally thrown under the bus with in regards to EV and, you know, they didn't talk about it, didn't talk about it because they like hybrid. And they've always liked hybrid because they're really, really good at that system. And so I think what we may see is a move back to the middle. You know, the oil and gas lobby is so unbelievably strong that they're just not going to go away. It's just not the way our democracy is set up. And the hybrid is, is from our studies, a good option. It's a, it's a good environmental option, and I won't, we don't have to go into that part of the discussion, but it's it's real. And so does hybrid make a comeback? I think it has to make a comeback because I don't think we have enough rare earth minerals. So you think that's going to be the problem, actually? Production? Mm-hmm. or Long you know, term. You, you may have seen like my posts on, to, on Twitter X or and LinkedIn and stuff, but I have a lot of dealers that just reach out to me and like just you know tell me stuff. By the way, also like on a tangent, that's kind of funny how I've kind of <laughs> have kind of fell into this area arena in the world where I, I don't know how this happened. I never considered myself to be, uh, you know, I don't even want to say say this is not even the right word, but uh, uh, independent journalist apparently. But needless to say, dealers send me all these, you know, just info and data, and it's really interesting to see how the state of you can you, you get really close to the pulse of what's actually happening on the ground floor, just like what you just said earlier, right? Talking to the dealers, but people from different you know brands, different franchises. You know, I spoke with a Hyundai dealer the other day. He's telling me he's like these things are not moving. I can't get them off my lot, and I'm losing tons of money on them. I spoke with a couple Ford dealers that you know are having issues selling the Lightnings, and they're saying that's slowed down you know tremendously. And now you know that Ford was sending some trainers on site. You know, try to help them work on talk tracks, but again, like that's not the solution here. So I, I don't have a crystal ball, but what I can tell is that it seems as if though the pendulum swung a bit too quick, and you know, it's maybe not the smartest move to kind of force one type of vehicle versus another down every consumer's throat. Rather, 
you know, really follow what the consumer wants and demands and, you know, backfill production to meet those needs. So that's sort of my very pragmatic view on kind of the state of our industry when it comes to EVs and hybrid. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a really interesting chart. It's, it's a map of the U.S. and it shows EV growth per state. And it's very kind of, it's not exactly, but it's a little blue state, red state. I think California's vehicle sales last month, I think the number was 23% EV. You'll go to other states that are 2%, right? And so like we, we talk about this average of it was six, now it's, it was seven, and now it's, it, it's eight and change. So it's moving up. But there are places in the country that you just flat out can't sell an EV. And so I have to do, I have to wear that filter a little bit when I'm talking to some of my dealers because I have to think about, okay, where are you? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good point. And, and how does how does that affect what I'm hearing you talk about? Have you made any meaningful investments in the space? Yeah, we've got a solid state battery company called Factorial. There's there's a problem with the existing chemistry and batteries. I don't want to bore your listeners, but there needs to be a a leap in what goes on with the way the batteries are, are constructed and it's getting rid of the liquid. The liquid is flammable and the liquid's the problem that you, you hear about these fires. And so moving to a different kind of tech, again, not to bore your, your, your listeners, but that, that's a good place to invest. And what's interesting is because those OEMs I talked about are who are $100 billion into this, they can't make a mistake. And so what's nice for us is we've got four OEMs sitting beside us in, in this investment, which is, which is great. It's nice to have that validation. Other areas, I think, you know, my worry about this not enough rare earth minerals, battery recycling is going to be a thing long term. Uh, the problem today is there's not enough feedstock. And so, one, there's not enough EVs on the road. And so there's not enough degraded batteries. But when that flips, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a really good place to be. Because these companies venture. will build like operating leverage and scale and it'll be a real viable business, right? That's right. Now you've got to do something with, with those batteries and you can't, obviously you can't put them in, in landfills. Slight tangent, but do you have a lot of investors, like your investors, your limited partners, are a lot of them dealers? Yeah, we've, we've got a lot. Actually, thirty-three. So it's a it's a big part of what we do, and it's it's a lot of the big guys. What's their motivation? Obviously, you know, make money, great, but you know, there's plenty of ways to make money. What's their motivation? You know, when they when they invest with you, you know, what are they looking for? Are they looking to get closer to the pulse of like innovation, or what is it? Yeah, I've got two ways to answer this. One is on a personal level; these guys have been doing it for like ever, and they they in their minds like. Yeah, I put dealer track in my 40 stores and I didn't get a piece of that. Yeah, I put VIN solutions in my 20 <laughs> stores and I didn't get a piece of that. So in their minds a little bit, it's like, I'm helping grow their business. Why wouldn't I participate in some of that upside, right? Which I, I get that. It I totally makes, get that. <laughs> and I love that because it's uh, that's like the trend in, in everything you're seeing now. You're seeing it, look, look at Messi, right? Messi, soccer player, got brought to the U.S., you know, got like a affiliate deal or something with like Apple, right? Because their streaming service blew up. I mean, I think in general, the value creators have really woken up. And and by the way, this also impacts, you know, people like myself, actual internet creators. They've just realized just, you know, they're waking up to equity, which is, you know, something that to many people is a bizarre phenomenon or they don't think about it as much, but that's that makes a ton of sense. 
just kind of getting a piece of something where it doesn't always work out, but when it does, you know, it can work out very well in certain cases. The other thing is these dealers, like more practically, these dealers' businesses have kind of just been on a trajectory that's very predictable. It's not predictable anymore. And so if you think about it, it's a it's a pretty small investment to make in order to see potentially something that could disrupt your store. Oh, I didn't know that was happening. I've got to, it's, it's protective, right? I need to do something about that. Or... I really like that. I'm going to go co-invest with FM Capital and I want to sit beside them in that deal because that's something I want to get behind. That's what the progressive dealers would be doing. Yeah. And and what, what would you say dealers are most interested in? Like, are they looking at deep tech or are they looking at, hey, make me make my service operations, you know, smoother so I make more money? Like, what is that? Is there any any kind of bias towards one thing or another? Yeah, you know what what has not changed, and this is it's, it's a funny, a good question you ask is somebody will pitch me on something that saves them money, or somebody will pitch me on something that's that's educational tool that's going to train their employees. You can sell those two things. It's a much much harder sell to a dealer. They want to move metal. It's the way their brains are wired. Sell me technology that helps me sell or service more vehicles. The disc test. Does it sell cars? <laughs> and I know that sounds incredibly simplistic, but it is just so true. But it goes back to what I love about a dealer. They are so resilient because they know how to sell. They're always going to know how to sell. It's it's the beauty of, of our of our industry. So it, it, it taints the way I look at deals a little bit because I know what the dealer's going to want. Now, I will tell you the saving money piece, it just hadn't mattered because dealers have killed it, like ridiculously killed it recently. When things turn, which they have to, right, from a cycle standpoint, they will be more cost conscious. And will we do better with with companies that are kind of wired that way? Yes. I've got a company called WarCloud that I love. It's, it's automating the warranty claims process. Super boring, super mundane. Who cares? A dealer cares because that's a huge pain point for them. And they're, they're going to care more when they're, when they're looking at expenses. Two years from now, three three years from now. So, yeah, I heard of them. Great company. What do you think about the regional dealership consolidation? Are we moving? You know, if anyone's listening to this, has one store, maybe two stores, maybe even three. Right? Is the world increasingly going to be more difficult for them? Is this a game of bigger players where you know you're there's no more mom and pop dealers, or does it just get a lot more difficult? Margins compress, you survive, but you don't really thrive. How do you think about that? Yeah, I made this comment maybe a bit controversial, but I think the OEMs, one-third B, fewer dealers, and although the, the party line is we support everybody, they really are getting behind the big guys. And they're, in a lot of cases, the big guys are getting the new points, and I'm, I'm not, this isn't conspiracy theory. It's just a function of the way business in our industry is, is working. So I think the small guy gets less attention over the next decade, for sure. I think margins get squeezed for the small guy. What, what's interesting about the big guys, and I'm, I'm tech-minded because that's what I do, right? They've just got bigger budgets. And so they can do a couple of things. They can experiment with everything, which is really valuable. And then two, they can just spend more money with tech. And it hasn't really mattered in the past because this is a kind of an an old school sales engine. 
you're coming up. We're going to close this guy. We throw him in a CRM. And in the old days, there wasn't a CRM, but you know, today, and we, we close the deal, right? Tech's going to change a lot of that. And the small guys are going to have, have a, bigger, a bigger uphill battle. It, there's some really good ones. There's going to be some guy in the middle of nowhere, Des Moines, Iowa, who his customers are so loyal and he's been there for 100 years. He's not going anywhere. But there's going to be some other dealers that will have some challenges. Does the current state of the car market and economy, does that concern you? As you're looking at these deals, you're kind of, you know, observing trends. Does, does this current state of what's happening with delinquencies rising with subprime borrowers, the price of cars, you know, kind of lack of affordability. How do you think about that? Does that concern you? Yes. In short, yes. I, the OEMs have are playing a dangerous game. I mean, EV is a very dangerous profitability game for them. But what they've also done is they've put so much tech into vehicles. The average price of a vehicle is is gotten into silly, a silly area. And the stimulus, the stimulus money obviously really helped like bolster things. Now that that stimulus money is, is largely run through our, our economy, you're going to see in interest rates, right? This is the interest rate thing is a real problem for vehicle financing, obviously. So you've got like this funky little perfect storm of increased vehicle price, just this interest rate issue. Yes. Now I'm an optimistic guy. And I think what ends up happening is there's a shift and they've either vehicles have got to get cheaper. So whatever it is the manufacturers putting out there, it's it's not the King Ranch F-150. It's it's another version that's affordable, right? So there'll be ebbs and flows, but short term, there should be a little thing. What do you think the net impact is going to be on the industry? I mean, do you think just volume declines for five years? Or do you think there's like a, you know, just like a secular change? that to the industry, to, to buying behavior. You're talking about just units sold, SAR? Yeah, I think I'm very concerned about, you know, I, I'm, I see these numbers and this data and I post about it regularly. And, I, I'm, and I'm talking to dealers. Like, I did a post the other day. I did a post and I just said, hey, dealers, temperature check. I've never done this before, by the way. I just said, dealers, temperature check. You know, what are we seeing right now on the ground floor? And I've never seen this before where almost every single dealer is telling me they're having a terrible month or their worst month is, you know, or maybe like only cash buyers. Again, there's some exceptions, like some dealers are doing fine, but overwhelmingly, I mean, you can look through this thread. It was like 400 responses. Most of them dealers telling me that, you know, they're not doing well. And it, I am, I'm just sitting here saying like, what the heck? Like this is happening quickly. Is this like a blip? Is this just like Q4 shenanigans, you know, pre-holidays or like what is going on? Yeah, I, that's an interesting comment. I do the same with, with, with my, my dealers. Is it a blip in time? And I, I look at human nature. What I find about dealers is they think in terms of, of 30 days, right? How many vehicles did I sell this month? And what's my fixed absorption look like on the back end? It's in a lot of ways a very simple, simple model. What I sometimes ask is, okay, well, what does your PL look like today versus what it looked like five years ago? And this whole doubling of net profit for dealers over the last two or three years, they've all got used to that kind of number. And so you've got this dealer group that's making $50 million a year, and they were making 20, 25. It's a paradigm shift, right? 
okay, are you going to go back to making 25 a year like you did when, when this funky little profit blip wasn't there with inventory? I think there's a lot of that. So it's a little bit of like reading between the lines with human nature with dealers. What's really going on from a, from a macro standpoint? Now, there's no doubt there are macroeconomic headwinds. And think about the way we look at the world. You asked me about autonomy earlier. Does that have an effect later? Without a doubt. Does this funkiness with EVs we've talked about, is that going to have a, a, an effect? Without a doubt. So is the dealer in uncharted territory? Yes. Much, much more so than my any other time in my 20 years, 25 years in this industry. So as someone that, you know, you're observing tons of companies that are impacting the, just daily operations of the dealer. And of course, you work with lots of dealers. Look, what would you say? Like, what would be your piece of advice for any dealers listening to this? Based on your knowledge, what would you say? Get really good in fixed ops. I think people have gotten maybe a little lazy with, with that. And you need to kind of return to the thing that's covering a lot of costs. So be good on the back end. I also find that dealers are admitting that their salespeople have gotten a little lazy in the sales process because there was a two-year period-ish. You didn't need to sell a car. Yeah, you didn't need to sell a car. Oh, okay, I don't have that. You know, it's it's not building a relationship and it's not in all cases, but in a lot of cases. So I think there's maybe a little, could be a little angst around self-training and getting back to your roots and actually having to sell dealers. I mean, good consumers. Yeah, you think about the functional like profit centers in a dealership. Are, are they maximizing what's going on in F&I, right? Like your kind of your profit per copy. What does that look like? I'm a big fan of the parts department. I think it's totally underutilized. Why though? I always thought that was like very, really commoditized. Yeah, we've got it. We've got an interesting business called Revolution Parts where we're, we're putting a, a Amazon-like experience into the parts department. So the way we look at it is, you know, the parts guys fell into warranty and the occasional jobber that comes in that, that buys that oil filter. There's a big market. And we've got dealers on this platform that are absolutely slaying it in gross profit. So I think at some point, the light bulb is going to go off with dealers and be like, okay, I need to figure out a way to sell parts outside of my market. I love how every topic we discussed, you have a company you've invested in. This is great. Oh my That's God. That's not, I mean, well, it's on purpose in the sense that we try to be pretty broad. But the other thing is we don't want to duplicate. It's, it's hard having two in the stable that compete because they don't like that at all. You're, so you're the anti-SoftBank. You're not investing in competitors. <laughs> we, are, we are for sure the anti-SoftBank for a lot of other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a bad example. Uh, that's great. Uh, and for anyone that doesn't get that analogy, do a quick Google search. You'll understand. I love it. I love it. Chase, this has been awesome. Before we wrap up, just give us some some juicy quick ones. I mean, what, what's been your biggest VC win? You know, we, we, t- we talked about Vroom a little bit earlier, and that one's in my mind only because it's not every VC wants an IPO, and we take it public, and we watch it, and then on paper, we're worth a gajillion dollars, right? And then we watch it go down, and so it was tough. It was a great lesson for me. And you, you gotta, if you got profit on the table, you need to take it. And especially if you've got crazy profit on the table, you got to take it. And there's that siren song of, oh, yeah, but I could just get a little bit more. Right. And that's that's a problem. Right. And so I say a problem. We made money and it was great, but that's one that was a, it was a big lesson for me. 
Yeah, any tough losses or you don't even have to name specifically if you don't want to, but um, like anything when it comes to kind of recovering from a loss, you know, humbling yourself, maybe you had a wrong thesis, like talk to us about that. The greatest lesson I've had in venture is when I first got into it, I would fall in love with the idea because you, you meet this person and they're so excited and it's just like this, it's what's great about America. It's like, it's the bedrock of, of like capitalism. It's the bedrock of what we are as a society. Like it's beautiful. Like it's, it's the, the, the idea and, and bringing that idea into the marketplace. And so I kind of fall in love with the person. And the problem is I've gotten a little hardened. I'm, I'm a 51 year old, like hardened old guy now. The idea is important to me, but it's flipped. It's team, right? So where it used to be 80% idea, it's 80% team now. Have you had it? Have you had an exit? Do you have personal money in this deal where you're sitting beside me? What are you going to do when your business fails? Because all of them fail. And I, I know that's a bit of a shock to say. Fail in the sense that they all have the dark night of the soul. Many times. Usually three or four times. And so how are you going to react when you've got that dark night of the soul? Are you going to be able to climb out of that and say, okay, tomorrow, here's what we're going to do and go own it? Or are you going to crawl into a shell and just give up? It is hugely important in my space. Maybe the most important thing. I think that's very well stated, having that resilience. And, you know, like you said, every single day, you know, with anything, kind of go through these, you know, I call it like micro failures, but you got to just keep going and, uh, you know, find a solution, be creative and keep building pivoting, doing whatever you have to do. So I think that's very, very well stated. I will tell you, I really feel like I'm the luckiest guy in America because I get to do this. I get to be around those people and I get to see what I really think America is all about. Uh, I'll, le I'll leave you with a story. We've got some Japanese investors and we've gotten close to them. And they told me once over sake <laughs> in Tokyo, they said, you know, we can't do what you do. We're, we're very linear and, and we're not very creative. And so do you realize, this is him talking, do you realize the whole world turns to America because you guys are the ones that create? And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. And as we look around the world and we do investments around the world, this is still the place. This is still the place for tech innovation. And I hope I don't sound like the ugly American talking. I'm someone who really believes in, in, in what we've got here. I, I love this country. I love America. And, you know, there's, I guess, uh, there's definitely some things that are hard to watch happening right now with politics or government and the markets and all that. But, you know, I, I think that we're a resilient nation and I hope and, and pray that we'll get out of it and that we'll come out stronger. So I think it's very, very well stated. I think you're a fool if you're not long America because of innovation and, you know, what we bring to the table, just the, the spirit of the entrepreneur. What, what a way to what a way to end a great conversation. Uh, Chase, before we wrap up, if any founders are listening, if any if any other people are listening that would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, just on that, we're raising this fund. I think I think I mentioned it earlier. So it's our fourth fund. We've got 300 million under assets under management right now in total. This next fund is going to be a, a good size. So if if you're interested in hearing more, please ping us. Go to our website, fmcap, fmcap.com, uh, and just just hit the uh, contact us, and, and we'll we'll get in touch with you. Yeah, we'll we'll throw it up in the show notes as well. Chase, thanks so much for coming on. This has been awesome. 
It was fun. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.